We've arrived now back into the Gospel of John in chapter 16, and we will be concluding the chapter. Now, we are Reformed, more be it, Reformed Presbyterian, and have Puritan lineage. So, I would like to forewarn you that this sermon might take towards that tint. So, if you feel like time seems to be moving, or time seems to be standing still, well, I apologize now. <laughs> but the gravity of the situation that we arrived to here is the last portion in dialogue and conversation to which the Messiah is holding with his apostles. Now, the scripture text we have today will be continuing from where Pastor Jason left off. So, which we'll be starting at verse 23 until the very end of the chapter. It reads, In that day you ask, ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be made full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, and I have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father." A disciple said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative language. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Ah, amen. Let us now look to the Lord our God in prayer. Father, we do thank you on this Sabbath day, your holy Sabbath day that you've given us, and mindful of this tender mercy that we have been granted, being that we are here today to take in your word. Therefore, Lord, of which be with us today as your son has shown us the truth and he could only speak of what you taught him. Well, Lord, we now take in heed in the lever-loving mercies and liberties that Christ has given us. And this liberty that we're going to expound on, Lord, may it be that we no longer take it for granted and have a clear and concise understanding of what he has afforded us especially in that day in which he spoke to his disciples about the cares and sorrows they have at his departure, they should have rejoiced. And nevertheless, they did. But it was upon which, until seeing the powerful manifestation of your hand with the resurrection of your son, did all things become clear and everybody's faith was indeed renewed. So in this, Lord, as we take in your word, be with us as we now tale on what the master is speaking of in those final words to his disciples and let us take it heart also the message that it's going to convey to us so christ was holy precious name we pray amen all right now if you took to what my 30 cent commercial was going to entail and some of the little nuggets that i was hinting at if you had pen and paper I will definitely suggest taking advantage of it today because of the amount of time uh, that I allotted for this sermon. I honestly did not have enough time to read uh, many of the passages, but I will take some time and brevity to allow for you to take note of what I am saying and where you need to reference to so that these ideas can become more concrete and solidified. Now, my introduction today for this exposition is very short, but I think it is necessary. Many of us have Bibles that are not of the same iteration. Yes, it is in English, but 
because of the different versions that are allotted, many of you might be noticing that verses are bracketed, bracketed differently in various places. Today, with distinction, especially given that I read verse 23 until the very end, some of your Bibles may have that bracketed as one. I'll get to that point in just a second. But if some of your Bibles have bracketed verses 23 and 24 with the preceding seven verses, starting at verse 16, you may have it bracketed under the title, Your Sorrows Will Turn Into Joy. And then upon which your Bible may then by the following state, the coming words, I have overcome the world or Jesus has overcome the world, beginning at verse 25. But whether you have verse 23 bracketed until the end, whether it's verse 25 bracketed until the end, it does not make no difference. The propositions to which the Messiah is conveying does not change. It will not change because the truth must stay static. Now, Taking that we start at verse 23, I'm going to take under the dialogue in which verse 23 is containing and providing a segue into the closing of this chapter. And it sheds some light. For example here, to begin, our Lord is foretelling that on the day, that day which he speaks of, there will be no question is to make light or make note that everything they will understood or heard from this time forward or previously before will be made clear. And think about it. His exact statement in that day, you will not question me about anything. You see, the arrival of this day is evident and mentioned with the context of verse 16. For in a little while, you will see me. So again, just by this point here alone, verse 23 can be taken with verse 16 and still stay within context. But then if it stands as a header to close the chapter, it is still proper. The proposition did not change. Now, the next revelation is, is profound in the true statement itself because the Messiah goes on to state, Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Now, Let's compare this to the previous statements because we've heard this before. In John 14, 13 through 14, it reads, Whenever you ask, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In John 15, verse 7, he states, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Similarly now, in continuing John 15 by verse 16, the assurance states, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you will go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. The scope of the repetition of the master's statement is with this. And it ties into the context of where we're starting from. The slightest difficulty you think you may have encountered from what I either stated thus far or what trials you may entail on the world. It will no longer be difficult because on that day, the spirit will then cause a yearn and affinity for you to lean on God. For you to Seek to grow in his knowledge. Now, I'm saying this because a time we can take that thought process for granted. So, I'm going to take a little bit of time, not so much as in time standing still and elaborate some more, but I want to make sure that what I'm telling you here is going to tell you the gravity of what is going to take place because the master is making a clear and acute point about this day in the old you may have heard in jeremiah 31 34 
It states, they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. The revelation of knowing God. You could have known God if you weren't a part of Israel. Think about it. Your knowledge of God was encapsulated just in a set of people. So there was a lot of people who come, who did not come to the knowledge of God. And if they died, died in their sins. That is a huge reality. And when I state here, I said I'm going to take some time. I'm going to now allow us to segue back because remember, I brought to you the verses 25 to 33 when we were going to chapter 14 and a portion of chapter 15 to show you how they are going to allow us to come back in full circle. And so in here, especially with Jeremiah speaking about the knowledge of coming to the understanding of God, you must take with great care that you know him or you make the claim to know him. Now let's fast forward 400 years later, or approximately so, as we're in entering into the new, the new administration. The master is speaking amongst his own disciples. And think of the questions that arose. Still staying in the context of verse number 23. Still thinking about that. The questions that arose. Do you recall with Philip? He wants to see the father. But the master admonishes him. How long how have I been so long with you? And yet you have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the father. And note the master's words. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the father abiding in me. John 14, 9 through 10. Again, this aspect of trying to come to this knowledge of God, if you were not part of Israel, you could not have this given to you. So then in chapter 15, we come from the aspect of trying to see the Father to where now, the adoptions as sons in the new covenant, the master is making an emphasis. Note here the new transition. In chapter 15, he gave the command to one another. And note what he states by verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I commanded you. No longer do I call you slaves. For the slave does not know what his master's doing. But I've called you friends Note here, for all things I have heard from my father, I have been, I have made it known to you. Note the transition to which the master is taking with the church. In the Old Testament, it was prophesied that no longer will it reach a certain sect of people. It is going to move out throughout the world. And the master is speaking to his own, is making it clear. I'm going to give you personal and intricate details about the Godhead. So now coming to chapter 16, the master's statement is ringing true here. In that day, you have no need to question. And especially given the gravity of that day and how it coincides with the offering of the Spirit, and especially the, what we understand as the Spirit's world in the world, we're now noticing the new dimension being emerged. The administration is now taking effect and is about to provide the change that's going to impact humanity. Because you know what? In that day, their prayers will resonate 
resonate more clearly and it's going to become more defined. I mean, why can I make such a claim? Note what the master is now stating in the subsequent statement. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be full. No more is a secret. No more is a shunning. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the whole Sanhedrin got it all wrong. The master is understanding with the trans transformation of this key word of joy, taking it from a concept that is seen to be abstract and now making it something where we can have it as a tangible feeling is illustrating the unity we are going to have with the father. Think about it. The metaphor he takes with the vine and the vine dresser, he concludes in that aspect that his joy may be in you so that your joy may be made full. As he is one with the Father and he is one with us, we should be one with the Father as well. Now, and given in context, considering the previous statements to what is leading to now, he tells his disciples as he forewarned them. Do you recall? He stated, the world will rejoice at my death and you will experience grief liking to the pains of a woman who endures labor. But amazingly, especially with this verse to show the new dimension that's being emerged with the covenant. He's conveying to them, ah, but this grief will be torn into a joy and the joy is comparable to the utmost exuberance a woman experienced when she's now given birth to a child. Because the woman no longer remembers the anguish because the joy is so overwhelming that she brought a child into the world. So let's put these two verses together. Let's piece it together here so we can stay on track here. You see, on that day, it will be clear. They will see that he rose from the dead in the same body he died in. And upon which... When he ascends bodily to the Father, the Spirit will come into place and dwell amongst them as a guarantee that the Father and the Son made their abode with them. John 14, verse 23. All that he said, you will know that the Father was speaking and the new dimension that's at hand and that has emerged. When you speak to him by prayer and you invoke my name, your faith will become strengthened because the Father listens. Beloved, this is a powerful statement, proposition, words that are conveyed by our master because now we can pray to the Father directly. Consider the workings of your faith and the strength that it will take at the aspect of prayer. The Godhead is at work. You pray to the Father, the Son mediates on your behalf, and the Spirit provides the instrument of your faith. The Godhead is always at work in the believer. And here's an interesting illustration that's going to provide more context and truth. And I'm going to keep into consideration that now the dimension of prayer has been added on for the believer. In Luke 18, the master denotes the parables, two of which, with verses 1 through 8. 
he denotes the parables that we are all to pray at all times and not to lose heart. By verses 9 to 14, the master juxtaposes what's considered to be improper prayer versus proper. But note here in John 16, the final and crucial piece to which allows us to even pray is the sheer notion that his name must be invoked. The involvement of his name is a seal of approval that we are trying to send to God for our petitions and supplications. I mean, Paul even recognized now the active role of the Godhead in the prayers of the elect. Romans 8, starting at verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he, who is Christ, who searches the hearts, know what the mind of the Spirit is, because Christ, as it stated, he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Some may find questioning to why the master will place the statement here or have a thought process as to why John includes it. Why choose these words now? Well, on my last time that I was here, and even Pastor Jason made some emphasis on this, but the hour has now arrived. And the immediacy of this hour signifies that the master has conveyed all that he needs to be said. And the aspect of stating this once more in this certain place puts a end to all the thought processes they would have had when considering the old administration, especially in the forms of prayer. In the church of the Old Testament, they saw the high priest enter the holy place in the name of the whole people of Israel. And they saw the high priest sacrifice and offer to God every day so that the prayers, note this, the prayers of the church might be acceptable before God. Everything Israel was doing was in type and shadows to the Christ that was to come. This is why he was making an emphasis to the Jews. If you knew who I was, you would be excited. All the stuff you saw the high priest and all the individuals do, they led to me and I'm going to fulfill it. Now to the apostles, given that the master was bodily present, it's unfamiliar territory to invoke his name in the prayers of God because they never gave them. They were not of the Levitical and high priestlyhood. So now he's conveying to them, ah, that's going to change. It's amazing because I see it proper. Because in God's wise and holy counsel, it was proper to fit it here towards the end. Because then this is the punctual point to the basis of Christian religion. Your communication with God. If your communication with God seems to be where you're afraid to speak with him, you have no idea what liberty Christ has purchased for you. Because there were individuals who would have died if they entered into the holy grounds. 
Now, we just did the first two verses. So, this is what I'm telling you. Now we're coming to the last eight. And remember, I told you, no matter if it's bracket in the ten or you got the last eight, I can assure you the propositions won't change. So it's okay. You can have a different Bible than everybody else. Just don't pick the ones that try to truncate, you know, the Greek Testament, the Greek, uh, the Greek, uh, New Testament text. Now, as we are approaching these final eight verses, let's make some reference points. In the preceding chapters, the master made some pivotal statements. In John 14, 25, he stated, These things I have spoken to you while I was abiding with you. He emphasized even some foresight as we continue in John 14 by verse 29. Now I have told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. These are pivotal statements here. In fact, the master even gave statements to pre-proceed to that they will be prevent from stumbling. In John 16 by verse 1 and 4, it reads, These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling, so that when their hour comes, you may remember what I have told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was always with you. So now we get into verse number 25 here. The immediacy of the hour and how it's going to unfold is taking place. Now watch, because this ongoing preparation he's making for his departure to the disciples is being conveyed. Because now he's showing how efficacious the spirit is at the work of the believer. The work of the Spirit is always to illuminate your knowledge. Unlike the papacy, who only believes that it's just the ascent to the knowledge, being reformed, we say you put that knowledge at work. So what you see, what you believe, what you read about God, these are attitude changes you want to practice. That's the key difference here. So in keeping in context, note here the efficiency to which the master is speaking of the spirit when it comes to the outworkings and knowledge of the Godhead to the believer. He states, these things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. The spirit makes us believe God. We can't believe of him ourselves. In fact, the master notating this is even emphasizing and echoing a sentiment that I believe Paul even makes it even more clear. In 2 Corinthians 5.16, he states, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, that means according to his bodily presence, yet now we know him in this way no longer. The master is explaining the profound work of the Godhead of which the spirit is efficient and efficacious in opening our minds to understand the scriptures. Again, the phase from the Old Testament now going on to the new, though from the old administration now on to the new, we are seeing the arrival in the expansion of the gospel being given to all the earth. And one of the mechanisms to which it had to undertake is that Christ has to be the one that opens your eyes. But if he's not here bodily, because remember the Israelites were saying, we believe, we heard that the Christ was supposed to live forever. So their thought process bodily, we're supposed, you're supposed to be here. But he's saying, no, you missed the boat. You missed the point. By my spirit, upon my departure, 
when it arrives here, it will tell you of everything about me. That's how efficient it actually is. Now, it's noteworthy to consider the specific timing to which the Christ is making this revelation. Because again, the immediacy of the hour to which he was to take his departure and consider what that hour entails from his prayer to the arrest to the trial to the tribulation and to the execution to the burial and on to the resurrection. We're taking a very serious movement into where the master is going. So, in regards to keeping in context where we are here with verse 25 and the efficiency of the Spirit in opening our eyes to understand Scripture, I'm just going to take you down a historical path. In Luke 24, after the Master has resurrected, do you recall the two individuals walking down the pathway and a third joins along the way? They are discussing what transpired earlier in the day. Now, these were their words. The things which have happened in these days are the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be sentenced to death and crucified him. I'm going to continue. The, now, note this dynamic in their discussion. But we were hoping that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also, some women were um, among us amazed us because when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman also had said. But him they did not see. So, that's in closing. Unbeknownst to the two individuals, the third individual who joins them was the resurrected Messiah. Now, note his attribute an attitude to this whole dynamic. He notices their disbelief. Though they plainly stated some doctrinal truths and explaining, they even heard the things that he said on the third day. It is the third day. Referencing it, they made the notion of the women seeing the vision to say, tell them he is alive because his body is no longer here. He sensed disbelief because the key word here was, and going back to the dynamic, but we were hoping that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. They missed the boat. So what does he do? He admonishes them by verse 25 in Luke 24. But with admonishing them, he's a merciful God. And he opens their minds to the scriptures. Because by verse 27, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Christ, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And don't tell me when Christ begins the work, he doesn't finish it. Because by their very own words, note what he states by Luke 24, 32. Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road and he was explaining the scriptures to us? Now, these individuals are no different than how the master also treated the apostles because the apostles followed the same pattern. In, in the account of Matthew in chapter 28, they journeyed to the mountain in Galilee that Jesus had designated to meet them at. But some who also went did not believe he was resurrected. Beginning with verse 16, the eleven proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. But by verse 17, when they saw him, 
They worshipped him, but some were doubtful. In Mark's account, beginning in Mark 16, Jesus appeared before the 11 apostles. And he also, then, in that time, he reproached them because he addressed their lack of belief in the eyewitness accounts that were mentioned in the previous verses with verse 10 and 11. And 10 and 11, those run congruent with Luke 24. Mark 16 by verse 14 reads, He appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. He reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. But even in his reproach, he still loves his own. And when he starts a work, he's going to finish it. So when we come back to Luke 24, by verse 44, what does he do? The passage reads, These are my words, as he speak to the apostles, which I spoke to you while still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. But that's not all. As we return to the Gospel of John, John confirms, again, especially what's being signified of that day. Do you recall in chapter 2, by verse 22, John notes, So when he was raised up from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. In chapter 12, by verse 16, these things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that he had done these, they had done these things to him. But here's the grandiose of them all. And tying back with the first three accounts I gave you. He re, when he reappeared again to them in that day. John accounts that our Lord opened their minds by simply breathing on them. And you know what's reminiscent of? It's reminiscent of the act of when God breathed life into Adam. The passage states, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors are being closed. Where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. John 20, 19 through 22. That was just John 16, verse 25. Now, it's okay, because as we're now segueing to the next portion and pieces, I have bracketed this now because it's all going to bring this back into full circle. As we are now segueing and arriving at John 16, 26 to 28, the Lord is now emphasizing this transformative, transformative shift that's going to transpire in the relationship between God and humanity. The bridge has been repaired. And it's a foretelling, especially that Christ was to undergo, undergo suffering to enter into his glory, Luke 24, 26, the outcome of this glory is the profound change in mindset among the elect. Because he reads, in that day, you will ask in my name. To the effect, I do not need, I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father, and I've come into the world. I'm leaving the world again, and now I'm going to the Father. 
That seems like a lot, but it's not. First, if anyone is thinking there is a schism because the master says, I do not say to you that I will request of the father on your behalf, he did not comprehend his work and his priestlyhood, let alone what he was here to do. Furthermore, I think you also overlooked what was supposed to be the inherent promise in the guarantee that is associated with the master's role. Now, Jason will be coming in to help us segue into chapter 17, but he's going to bring this to light. So I won't touch too much on it now. But if someone is thinking, well, pastor, how do we make word of this? I said it before I read it, but I'm going to give it to you even in more detail. You see, again, the relationship between God and humanity was broken. And by Christ and his suffering, he made it intact. He showed it in copy and shadow with the Old Testament. And he became the fulfillment of doing that in the new. So then, upon his resurrection and entering into his glory, when he ascends and the Spirit descends, the Spirit would allow us to understand the work that he was commissioned to do. And upon the work, there is a change that came with it. You can now communicate personally to God. You will invoke the name of the Messiah. And when you make these personal requests to the Father in the name of the Son, your faith should be strengthened because you are now communicating with God personally. When the Messiah spoke, that the Father loves him self, I'm sorry, the Father himself loves you, it's in proof and evidence of that oneness you have with the Son. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves his elect, and those two are one. The Father, indeed, will place his love on you as adopted children of God. And that belief in the oneness of the Father and the Son is rooted in the work of the Spirit that works in your minds to believe that. The Master came forth from the Father as he stated, and he has come into the world. Now, if you want to take some first references, John 1, 1 through 3, continuing to 9 through 17, also with verse 30, 33, 34, 49, and 51. But in coming forth from the Father and having come into the world, he was obligated to carry out the work of the Father, a task which he was only commissioned to do. And upon this task, there was a reward. He was going to return to his rightful position at the right hand of God. His perfect obedience was an accomplishment because Adam couldn't do it. Now, the disciples, as we continue to John 16, give a response. They say, no, now you are speaking plainly. You're not using figure of speech. We now know you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. Now, I brought this in reference to when we were in chapter 14 and chapter 15 because the Lord was using that form of figurative language. 
But as we got to this portion of the chapter, and now as we're seeing it in full force, we're seeing the, I hope you see the efficacy of the Spirit. Because of just this small little piece, the apostles are excited. We get to communicate with God. That's the show of the transformative shift that's transpiring with the church. But you know something? God always has a place to let you know, oh, you believe me now? Remember I brought to you in Luke 24? I brought to you in Mark 16, the reproachment? There's a reason why he's stating what he's stating next. Because when your faith needs to be challenged, and better yet, strengthened, you're going to see when it's put to the test, what you're going to do. So guess what? He states to them, now let's put it to the test. Here, I'm going to tell you right now, the hour is coming. Nope, it's now. And your faith is going to be at work. It's going to be challenged. Why? Because when the rubber meets the road, you are going to be scattered each to his own home, and you're going to leave me alone. But yet, he's not alone. Because then he reassures them, you think I'm alone. But I'm not alone because the Father is with me. And peace. The peace that comes with the master is no different than what he said in the closing here. Given that the hour was here, he bids them one more to calm their hearts. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. The peace is different from what the world can provide. It's different than what your friend can console you with. By John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to, I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. And bringing this all together, he spoke of the Spirit. Whom the Father will send in my name, and he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. John 14, 26. So therefore he declared to them that when you see my persecution and when you undertake sorrow, strife, and despair, it's because in the world you will always have tribulation. If they hated me, they will hate you as well. But, take courage, the master's own words. Because, again, as Paul puts it properly, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we heard it before, I'm going to say it again, by verse 6 and 7, knowing that while you are at home in the body, you are absent from the Lord, walk by faith. Not by sight. That gives a different meaning to this context when you think about it here, not when you're thinking about how God can make me rich. And in context with 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when the master concludes with, I have overcome the world. It is the spirit that moves us to believe it, to see it, and to know it. Now, I saved time for this. Okay, we have now come to the closing of chapter 16. And especially in considering this aspect of I have overcome the world. And we're going to segue into chapter 17. Now, Jason's going to, like I said, is going to come in. He's going to allow us to properly segue into it. I want to go back to the last words the master said to the Jews before the disciples and himself secluded themselves in the last, two, in the last three chapters. 
because they ring true to when you to consider what we're going to take and hear the master pray, especially in chapter 17. But then they also ring true for us. Because remember, there was a message given to the apostles of that day. And my working here through this gospel um, position, especially with these last three chapters, is to see what he is telling us as well. I will begin by verse number 27, but I have piecemealed it. So it would not be the entire chapter, but it will be piecemeal. But I'll read it at verse 27. And I'll read also verse 31, and I'll conclude with verse 44 to 50. But take this in perspective when we consider chapter 17. The master states, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. By verse 31. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. At verse 44, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sent me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and do not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world but to save it. He who rejects me does not receive my sayings, has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak as the Father, my Father, has told me. Let's go to the Lord our God in prayer.